Is the Word of God making me more like Jesus Christ? Is God's Word accomplishing its work in our life? And his answer, as we saw, is it all depends. It all depends on whether or not we welcome God's Word. And to welcome the Word of God is to receive it in a clean, honest, and humble heart. And so if we come here with confusion in the human heart, clouded by sin, then you will miss so much of what God wants to say to you. Hello, and welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. We are beginning our study in the book of James, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Let's join Pastor Carl as he illustrates for us that when the Word of God is taught and welcomed, we will begin to see the issues in our life corrected. I want to invite you this morning to take your Bibles and turn to the Proverbs of the New Testament, the Epistle of James. I hope you are trying to read this once a week, as uh, many of you have already expressed to me. It's just a short 108 verses. You can read it in less than 15 minutes. And as you read it over and over and over again, it will become part of you. You will begin to think your way through it, paragraph by paragraph. It will flow through your mind and heart, and God will use it not just in helping you, but also in helping those that He has entrusted you to disciple. I've told you that some Bible teachers are convinced that it's impossible to outline the book of James because he addresses some 30 different topics. But if you read it and reread it, you will actually see there's a pattern. In fact, if there's one word that typifies this short little letter, it is the word faith. In this letter, James examines real faith versus phony faith. He unfolds mature faith versus infant faith. In one word, it's about faith. And again, I've told you many times that as you read and reread a book of the Bible, you'll begin to see how it divides up. And so as this chart reminds us, there are three major divisions to the book of James. Chapter 1 looks at the, the development of faith. And he deals with three problems, the problem of pain or trials, the problem of temptation, and then the problem of failing to apply God's Word to your life. And so he's really dealing with the subject of how does our faith develop? How does it progress? When you come to the second section, he deals with the distortion of faith. And he primarily in chapters 2 through 4 focuses on three issues. He deals with our testimony, he deals with our tongue, and he deals with things that we ought to avoid. So this section of the book becomes kind of a spirituality check. He finished chapter 1. Well, the guy who thinks he's religious may not really be religious at all. He may not be spiritual the way he thinks he is because we tend to often measure spirituality by how much we know, maybe how many Bible studies we attend, maybe if we've led a Bible study, um, maybe how many times we've read through the Bible from cover to cover. But James measures it in a different way. And so we will come to one of the real litmus tests that he gives the tongue. He is going to address how we treat other people. When we come to chapter 4, he's going to deal with three thorny issues. In verses 1 through 10 of the fourth chapter, the problem of worldliness. Then he is going to deal in verses 11 and 12 of chapter 4 with the problem of judging one another, especially in the body of Christ. And then in chapter 4, verses 13 through 17, the problem of perspective. 
How do we, as people who are twice born, headed for heaven, how do we make our lives count for all of eternity? How do we lay up treasure in heaven to use the words of Jesus Christ? Then, of course, when you come to the fifth chapter, he deals with the display of faith. And once again, he hammers three issues. He deals first with our possessions. How do we relate to the things of this world that God has blessed us with in a healthy way? Then he deals with the subject of patience. Then he finishes the book on the subject of prayer. And of course, prayer is sprinkled all the way through this short little letter, but it's certainly highlighted in the final paragraph. And you learn as you read the epistle of James that he is a man who's not simply a theoretician. He's a practitioner. Prayer to him is not something he just read in a book somewhere, but something that he practices in his life. Now, that's the big picture of the book. Keep reading it. Try to read it once a week. I want to begin by reading our passage. I'm reading from the New American Standard. If you do not have a Bible, come to meet the pastor, and you will be able to receive one. James 2, beginning now in verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes... You pay attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place. You say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? Do they not blaspheme the fair name by which you have been called? If, however, you are fulfilling the royal law according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not commit murder. Now, if you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The physician of the soul is like the physician of the body. He must perform and achieve three goals. Number one, he must diagnose the problem. Number two, he must prescribe the remedy. And number three, he must effect the cure. And so James, like a spiritual physician, takes his stethoscope and he puts it to the heart of this first century assembly and he discovers that they are suffering from the hardening of their spiritual arteries. Now, again, I told you that some people have great difficulty outlining the book of James, and that's typically because they've not read it through enough in a single sitting. And you cannot imagine how much your Bible study will be enhanced if you just read a book over and over and over and over again. And so some look at chapters 1 and 2 as totally unrelated. Now, certainly, it enters into a new section of the book, uh, 
but he's actually taking what he finished in chapter 1, and he's expanding the theme. If you remember, in chapter 1, he dealt with the subject of trials. He wants us to help to respond properly to trials, to consider them joy. And if we don't, then those trials can potentially become temptations. And the only way to properly respond to trials and to temptations is to be rightly related to the Word of God. And so we learned last time that the Spirit of God uses the Word of God not only to save us, for we are born again, not of perishable seed, but imperishable seed through the living and abiding Word of God, Peter will say, but it's also the Word that he uses to save our souls. And we saw the tense there, to sanctify us. In Peter's words, like newborn babes, we are to long for the pure milk of the Word so that we can grow. And so at the end of chapter 1, if you'll look back on a page in verses 19 through 27, we discover that he asks and answers a basic question. Is the Word of God sanctifying me? Is the Word of God making me more like Jesus Christ? Is God's Word accomplishing its work in our life? And his answer, as we saw, is it all depends. It all depends on whether or not we welcome God's Word. And to welcome the Word of God is to receive it in a clean, honest, and humble heart. And so if we come here with confusion in the human heart, clouded by sin, then you will miss so much of what God wants to say to you. And so we're commanded in verse 21 to put aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness. We saw there has to be a weeding out before there can be a seeding in. And so you can hear hundreds and hundreds of sermons, attend scores of Bible studies in your life, but not really have them change you and sanctify you. And so he told us, again, in humility, receive the word implanted. If we have a spirit of arrogance, I already know this. What are you giving me this message all over again? Maybe this is for someone else. And you cannot really grow. There must be an earnestness and a hunger, like a baby wants to drink milk at its mother's breast. There must be a hunger for God's Word. We must earnestly, to use his illustration, look intently into the mirror to see what it is saying. And so how do I know that it's really at work in my life? Number one, I'll have control over my tongue. Number two, he emphasizes that I'll have a servant's heart for those who cannot return uh, my service in response. And then third, I'll be unstained by the world. And so in order to press the question, is God's word really working in my life? He gives three proofs. But now he takes those three things that he ended chapter one, and he unfolds them in reverse order. And these three things that he is going to unfold pertain not only to the first century church, but to the 21st century church. And so now he's asking and answering the question, what if I fail to really welcome the Word of God? What if I don't deal with sin? What if I don't earnestly hunger for Scripture? And so in reverse order, he begins by showing we'll be stained by the world's values. That's verses 1 to 13. Then in verses 14 through 26, will not take care of the needs of other people. You will not have a faith that genuinely works. And then third in chapter 3, you will not have control over your tongue. So listen, these chapters are all related. They're not impossible. 
to map out. James is a very logical person, and when you see the connections, it becomes quite, quite powerful. Again, you have to read and reread the book to see how it unfolds. And so we are to keep ourselves unstained, he says here at the end of chapter 1, by the world. And one way to know whether you are stained or polluted by the world is whether or not you are a spiritual snob. And so the title of this morning's message. Sometimes I'll hear someone say, well, we want to start a New Testament church. I think, oh, really? Well, what kind of New Testament church do you want to start? Do you want to start a church like the church at Galatia that was covered over in legalism? Do you want to start a church like the church at Corinth that had problems with drunkenness, immorality, the misuse of spiritual gifts, factions, suing one another? Or maybe you'd like to be like the church at Thessalonica where some people had just quit work. They had become lazy, waiting for the return of Christ. Or maybe you'd like to be like the church at Ephesus who in its later stages had lost its first love. Or maybe the church at Pergamum that had compromised orthodoxy. You see, when you take a close look at the Bible, you soon discover that the early church was not a perfect church. It suffered from the same maladies that we suffer because we are all descendants of Adam. By nature, we are all sinners, and that sin can express itself in a variety of ways. And so contrary to the ignorance of our day, the early church was not the society of the perfect, but indeed we are to be the society of the progressing. Paul will say to Timothy, make sure your progress is evident to all. And when the Word of God is taught, and when the Word of God is welcomed, we will begin to see issues in our life corrected. And so what James demonstrates in our passage here in verses 1 to 13 is what will happen if the Word of God is not welcomed. You'll have snobbery. You'll have partiality. You'll have discrimination. You'll have spiritual pride. Now, let me give you an outline of this tightly constructed argument so that if you fall asleep, you will at least know where we are when you wake back up. In verse 1, he introduces the principle. In verses 2 through 4, he illustrates the principle. In verses 5 through 11, he explains the principle. And then finally, in verses 12 and 13, he applies the principle. There's a note-taking outline in your bulletin, or if you're listening online, there's a place where you can print it out. If you're not sure how to do that, ask the people monitoring our various social ministries and websites, and they'll give you instructions. So let's begin with the principle of partiality stated. He begins by stating a principle in reference to partiality. Let's look now at verse 1. My brethren, he's addressing Christians, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. Most of you know that the way to emphasize in the original language of the New Testament, they didn't use highlighters, they didn't underline in red, they changed the normal word order. And so literally, it doesn't read real smooth in English, But this phrase, with an attitude of personal favoritism, is moved out of its typical order and put at the front of the sentence for emphasis. Literally reads, my brethren, do not with an attitude of personal favoritism 
hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Namely, showing favoritism is totally incompatible with our confession of faith in the Lord Jesus. It's totally inconsistent. It's totally incongruent with who Jesus is. It's like trying to mix oil and water. Personal favoritism. The ESV renders it partiality. The King James says respect of persons. The Greek New Testament literally takes two Greek words, bleeds them together, and literally it means to receive by face. Initially, it was referred to someone uh, that you evaluated, evaluated on the basis of the way in which they looked. But as time, the word progressed and took on more of a metaphorical meaning where you evaluated a person not simply by their face, by the way they looked, but by their status, by their education, by their race, by their wealth, by their rank, regardless of the merits of their character or their personality. The Amplified Bible, which is a paraphrase, renders it, stop holding the faith with snobbery. It's the idea here of judging others by the external, which is clearly evil. That's not found in God the Father. It's certainly not found in God the Son. And when we worship in the Spirit, He would not have us to worship in that way. Now, many of you have done studies on the attributes of God. Maybe you've read books about them. And very often when people study the attributes of God, they'll study things like God's omniscience or God's omnipresence or uh, God's uh, holiness or God's grace or God's mercy or God's immutability. But, you know, I've got a dozen books on the attributes of God in my library, and I can't find one that deals with the attribute of impartiality. God is an impartial God. Paul said to the church at Rome, for there is no partiality with God. Do you remember that occasion in Acts chapter 10 when God gave Peter a vision of this sheet that came down from heaven three different times with these different types of clean and unclean animals in them? And Peter says, I, I can't eat anything that's unclean. And and the purpose is not to teach him something about food, but to teach him something about the way God deals with Jews and Gentiles because he had shown some favoritism, some partiality in the way he dealt with his Jewish brethren versus that of Gentiles. And after the vision and after God shows him that this relates to the fact that Gentiles are going to be on the same par in the kingdom of God as Jews, and that they received the Holy Spirit in the exact same way that the Jewish people did on the day of Pentecost, he concludes, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. And as you would expect, since Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, he never, ever, ever showed any partiality whether he was ministering to a beggar or whether he was ministering to a wealthy Jewish leader, whether he was ministering to a Pharisee, the word Pharisee meant a separated one, or to a man covered over in leprosy that was considered unclean, 
whether he ministered to a virtuous woman or to immoral prostitutes, whether he ministered to the high priest or to common worshipers. He cared about the famous and the well-liked, and he cared about the outcasts. Do you remember that occasion in John chapter 4? John records the time when Jesus heads to Samaria because there's a woman there who needs salvation. And in John 4, 4, it says, he had to pass through Samaria. I love the old English of the King James. It's a little awkward, but it says, and he must needs go through Samaria. Now, it's awkward in our day. It wasn't awkward in their day. He must needs to go through Samaria. In other words, he had to, he must go through Samaria. Now, here's a map from picturing the first century provinces. I hope you can make it out. Um, In the north, you have, north of Samaria, you have the province of Galilee, which became Christ's headquarters for three years out of the city of Capernaum. And south of that, you have Samaria, and south of that, you have Judea. So if you're a Jew in Jerusalem, and you're headed to Galilee, you had one of three options. You could go on the western edge of Samaria and kind of walk along the shore, hoping that you will, would avoid any Samaritan people. That's one way to get there. Uh, a second way, the more uh, preferential way, was to walk through the province of Perea along the Jordan River, and you could avoid Samaria altogether. But the third option, especially if you were in a mad rush, the shortest, most direct route was to go straight through Samaria. But if you were a Jew, that was not a preferable route. You didn't want to walk through Samaria. You wanted to go around Samaria. Why? Because they despised the Samaritan people. Now, you remember the kingdom at once was all called Israel. Twelve tribes gathered together under its first three kings because of the moral compromise of Solomon under his son Jeroboam. The kingdom split into the north and the south, or Rehoboam, the north and the south. Jeroboam became the king of the north. Ten northern tribes, they called it Israel. So it's a little confusing sometimes because you read about Israel, and now he's talking about just the ten northern tribes. And then you had the two southern tribes under Rehoboam, and that was called Judah. Now, if you remember, God sent different prophets to come and preach, and it's always important to ask, who is this prophet? Is he preaching before the exile, during the exile, after the exile? When you put it together historically, the Bible will come alive. And you had these prophets who came into the northern kingdom and said, you've got to repent. And if you don't, God's going to judge you. And he did, and he brought down the Assyrians in 722 BC, and they carried away the 10 northern tribes. They left some of the people, but they took away the best of the people the most productive people. But some of the people who were left behind by design were there to intermarry with the Assyrian people. And a new race of people was developed, half Jewish, half Gentile. They were called Samaritans. Now, when the 10 northern tribes were together, they had as their capital Samaria. And if you remember, that became a place of worship among other places because they didn't want the Jews in the northern kingdom to go into Jerusalem. They didn't want them to defect to their southern brothers. And so by the time the Babylonian captivity was over and centuries had gone by, you had this half-breed known as Samaritans, and they worshipped in a place called Samaria, 
And then you had full-blood Jews who worshipped in the place that God called his name to dwell. We call it Jerusalem. So Jesus is on a mission, Dea. He had to. That word is used five different times in the Gospel of John to explain a mission that he was on. It's a major theme of the Gospel. Even uh, Josephus, a first century um, historian who was Jewish of the day, uses the same word to describe the way a Jew would travel to Samaria, that it was essential that he go around Samaria to get to Galilee. So Jesus went to Samaria. Why? Because he came to seek and to save that which is lost. And in his omniscience, he knew there was a woman there, a despised woman, because she was so immoral. When Jesus questioned about her home, he pulled back the veneer and says, well, actually, you've been married five times, and the man you're with now is not even your husband. Now, according to the Mishnah, which is a Jewish book, which is kind of a compilation of the Jewish traditions, they considered Samaritans unclean from the cradle. And they considered it in the first century an unforgivable crime for a Jew to marry a Samaritan. But Jesus didn't look at people according to the face, literally, He was not a respecter of persons. He loved the world. He saw this mongrel race. He saw this morally depraved woman for whom he would shed his blood. And he sought after her that she might be saved and that she might worship the living God in spirit and in truth. And so here's the Lord God. He is seeking after this woman. Now, understand when he addresses the problem, he doesn't brush over her sin. And so today we have a new administration that says preachers like me are discriminating if we preach against the LBTQ plus lifestyle. No, that's not what the Bible means by discrimination. But we've made this kind of a minority status. And so just before our new president was inaugurated, he held a prayer meeting where he had a prayer meeting led by two transgender people and one homosexual. Then he went and he placed his hand on God's almighty word after he had been to church, and he took his promise to the office. What a mockery. And in just these last two weeks, we've seen executive orders written that is freeing up the murder of innocent babies in the womb and is promoting what God calls an abomination. Now, wonder, God says, the prayer of a wicked man is an abomination to him. When you endorse what is wicked, God calls you a wicked person, and he in turn calls your prayers wicked. As Pastor Carl said, welcoming the Word of God is to receive it in a clean and humble heart. If you would like a copy of today's message in its entirety, go online to searchthescriptures.org. 
You can also order a CD or DVD copy by calling Search the Scriptures at 877-787-7478 and requesting program James 005. Please join us tomorrow as Pastor Carl continues his message in James chapter 2 entitled, How to Hear God's Word. Join us then as we search the scriptures.